We conclude our study in Acts this morning, so let's turn to the final chapter there, Acts 28. Please follow along in the Bible. Uh, If you don't have a copy with you, you can turn to uh, page 937 in the Bible that's provided in front of you. You'll remember that we left Paul last week uh, and his some 200 plus other um, uh, shipmates had just arrived on dry land after that terrible uh, ordeal at sea. And they're going to find out that they're on the island Malta. Spend some time there before Paul does finally arrive in Rome. Acts 28, beginning in verse 1. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now, in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, he healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed." After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to Puteoli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, Yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and to speak with you, since it's because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. They said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. 
But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement, or after he had made this statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their eyes they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Thus far, the reading of God's holy inerrant and life-giving word. I've uh, reminded you throughout our study that the book of Acts is really a sequel. It's part two uh, to the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke. Um, Luke records the, um, the life and ministry of Jesus. Acts picks up the story after he's ascended into heaven. So we have part one and we have part two, and we come to chapter 28, and uh, we wonder, where's part three? Where's part three? Did you get a sense that Acts seems to be expecting a sequel that never comes? It doesn't feel like it wraps up nicely, does it? After all, what happens to Paul? I mean, that's the big question, isn't it? Uh, We've been following Paul specifically for about the last 15 or so chapters, and especially here at the end, uh, we've been following his trial uh, starting in Acts 20, um, 22, uh, 21 and 22, where he's arrested in 21, and he begins being brought before all these different tribunals. And, and so we've really gotten invested in this story, and yet we're not given a conclusion. Does he meet with Caesar? Is he exonerated? Is he, is he let go? Is he released from prison? What, what's going on, Luke? Why would you give us all these details and then not finish the story? Where is part three? But you see, it's not until we come to the very last verse, verse 31, that we remember Paul is not the main character of the book of Acts. The book of Acts is not about Paul. Acts is, is not a, a Netflix documentary about the apostles' woes with the justice system of his day. And then you get to the last episode and you realize, oh, they never told you what verdict came. Well, that would be pretty disappointing. You would have felt like you wasted a couple of your hours watching that documentary to not find the conclusion. Well, if that was the case, we would have good reason to be upset. But Paul is not the main thing in Acts. 
The gospel is the main thing in the book of Acts. Let's consider that firstly this morning, that the gospel is the main thing in the book of Acts. In these past 28 chapters and in these past 40 sermons, we have been tracing not the life and times of the Apostle Paul or even the Apostle Peter, although they make uh, significant appearances. We've been tracing the spread of the gospel from the center of Judaism, the city Jerusalem, now to the center of, of the secular world of the day, Rome. We were told this is what we should expect from the very beginning. Jesus declares in Acts 1, verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Well, we've been tracking with the apostles as they've been used by the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ to fulfill that mission. That's what it's been about. Not the missionaries, but the mission. About getting the gospel out of Jerusalem and to the whole world. And Rome marks the most significant step in the completion of that final stage, that final program that Jesus laid out there in chapter 1. But we can easily forget that this is the focus of the book because we get so caught up in the drama of the, the characters and their story, and it is very interesting. So I wanna, I'm going to ask you to just bear with me as we trace one final time the main theme of the book of Acts. So I don't want you looking up here. I want you looking down at your Bibles, and we're going to start at the very beginning, and we're going to see how this has been the main thing all along. First, we go to Acts 2. So turn to Acts 2, and then we're just going to work our way through up to the end, starting towards the end of Acts 2, verse 41. These are the clues that Luke has been leaving along the way to let us know what this book is really all about. Acts two forty-one. So those who received his word were baptized. That's Peter's word, his preaching, were baptized. And they were added that, that day about 3,000 souls. And you skip down to verse 47. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. We get another report in chapter 6 and verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Again, it's about the word of God increasing. It's about the church growing. As the word goes, the church grows. Similarly, chapter 9. Chapter 9 and verse 31. So the church throughout all of Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it, the church... Multiplied. Chapter 12, verse 24, the penultimate verse in that chapter. Succinctly stated, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Chapter 16 now, verse 5. This is the sixth hint that Luke has given us so far. 16 and verse 5. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they, the churches, increased in numbers daily. And then one last one, chapter 19, 
and verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now you can return to chapter 28, and you see with those texts in mind, the very last verse of Acts makes a little bit more sense. We are left with Paul, we are told, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Sounds like chapter 19, the word of the Lord increased and prevailed mightily. And now Paul is getting back to that work. And so we see it's the Lord Jesus Christ working through his spirit by the word who has been the main character all along. It's about Jesus, not Paul. And this Jesus has won. He's been victorious. The gospel has won. The gospel is now being proclaimed without hindrance and with all boldness in the most influential city in the then world. In the words of uh, my old professor, Dennis Johnson, he says, The gospel's unhindered and irresistible victory is the note that Luke leaves ringing in our ears. The gospel's unhindered, irresistible victory. That's how Luke leaves us, but we shouldn't be surprised, should we? Because that's what he's been writing about all along, that the gospel is victorious, that the gospel grows. And as the gospel, or as the gospel goes, the church grows, it multiplies, it increases. And, and even all of the ink that has been spilt to record for us the life and times of Paul up to this point and, and other characters... That has all served this purpose, letting us know that they are in service of the Lord Jesus Christ to make that mission uh, come about. That, that the reason we've been following Paul is not to follow Paul. It's to follow what he's been speaking, what he's been saying. It's to follow the gospel. Think about it. Every time that Paul stood on trial these last six chapters, it was a time for him not to defend himself, but to defend the faith. And you'll remember in one of his epistles, Paul would write, uh, speaking of his imprisonment, he would say, I want you to know that what's happened to me has actually really served to advance the gospel. Paul gets it. He says it right there at the beginning of Philippians. And that's what's happening in the book of Acts. What is happening to Paul isn't about Paul. It's about advancing the gospel. And the amazing preservation through the storm at sea ensured that Paul could testify about the Lord Jesus Christ before kings and, and emperors, namely Caesar, as he had been um, destined to do. God has been preserving him to testify. And that's the same reason we have this scene on Malta at the start of chapter 28. It's another instance of God's kind protection to Paul to bring about God's perfect plan for his church and for his kingdom. Now, something that's striking about the opening of this chapter is the reaction that the natives on Malta have to the snake bite uh, that Paul receives. He's, he's helping place wood on, on the, the fire. He, he grabs what he thinks is a bundle of sticks, but actually there's a, there's a serpent in there, there's a viper, and when it feels the, the heat of the, the flame... Uh, jumps out from that bundle of sticks and latches onto Paul's hand, bites Paul. He sinks his fangs firmly into his flesh. And what do the people say? It's in verse 4, right? No doubt this man is a murderer, though he's escaped from the sea. Now justice 
won't allow him to live. It's interesting, if you're looking at an ESV or maybe an NIV, justice is capitalized, and rightly so, because um, this is their view of God. Uh, Justice is the force that makes the world go round to the natives there on Malta. It's not a thing that happens. Justice is not a thing that happens like you enact justice. No, to them, justice makes things happen. Justice is a controlling force. It's fatalism, really. Today, we we would refer to it commonly by the the Hindu word karma, right? What goes around comes around. They say you clearly must be a murderer. What else can explain the fact that the moment you step on dry ground after that terrible ordeal at sea, you you receive a lethal uh, bite from a viper? That's what they're saying. Paul did something bad. You should have died at sea. You escaped justice for a moment. Justice has come knocking again. And so there's this force out there. We call it fate, call it chance, call it justice, vengeance, the King James has it. Uh, To them, that's what dictates Paul's future. Yet how contrary is this to the view of God that Paul holds and the view of God that Luke has been presenting to us? Paul's God is not an impersonal force at all. Paul's God is a personal being, is somebody that he knows. Uh, he, he has encountered this God at least on two occasions in the person of Jesus Christ. In the road to Damascus and then in prison, Jesus appears to him. He's heard this God speak to him from the angel on, aboard the ship who comforts him in his time of need. A God who through the providence by which he governs all creatures and all their actions has kept Paul alive from beatings, from assassination attempts, from shipwreck, and now from snake bites. And you know, the moment that that viper bit Paul, I, I don't know that Paul thought, oh, I'm going to survive this. I don't, I don't think that Paul was that confident or had that sort of certainty. But I do know this, that when Paul did not die, Paul was not surprised. Now, everybody else is surprised. They don't know what to make of this, right? Justice doesn't work this way. Fate doesn't work this way. And so they swing the entire other way, right? Well, the only answer must be that you are a God. And Paul would laugh at this. I'm not God. And I know I'm not God. Why? Because I know God. I have a personal relationship with God. And this is what he does. This is how he works. If it's his will, he chooses to preserve his servants. And Paul said, he's been preserving me all along. I'm not that surprised that I'm preserved now. And I just want to say, friends, what an immense blessing it is to know God personally. To know him personally. Because when you know God personally, you know that every moment of your life is governed by his kind watch care over you. His perfect and personal watch care over you. And some of you have had those near-death experiences like Paul has had. You know, perhaps receiving a a terminal diagnosis from the the doctor, and here you are still. Or or when you got that close uh, uh, to the semi on the highway. Those those near-death experiences. And, And when Christians go through those, we come out of those and we don't say, Oh, whew, that was a close one. We don't say, Oh, I got lucky there. We say, this is just yet another example of my kind and loving and faithful God being kind and loving and faithful to me. This is who he is. This is what he does. He didn't need to do it. I don't deserve it, but I'm not surprised when he does it because this is who he is and this is how he acts. 
You see, when you know God personally, it makes sense of the whole world. Here are these, uh, the Maltese citizens there on the island. They're trying to make sense of the world. How do you make sense of a snake bite after this guy had just gone through a, a, a shipwreck and now he's going to die? Well, must be fate. Now he doesn't die. Oh, must be that he's divine. There's deity. Oh, the Christian has such a much better answer to those things which are confusing in life, even maddening in life, or even exhilarating in life. We say, we know God, and God is good, and God is powerful, and this is what he does. This is how he works. This is how he works. And it's not just these major near-death episodes, but even in the small things. Right? Every breath we take, every beating of our heart comes from his kind sovereignty. Even small things like meeting friends to encourage you on your journey. Did you notice that that happens for Paul as they're making their way to Rome? Brothers come and visit them, verses 14 and 15. And what does it say that Paul does since these friends come to see him in Rome? At the end of verse 15, on seeing them, Paul thanked God. Why? Because Paul gets it. (laughs) Paul gets that it's all about God. It's all about God's glory. He's the main thing. Paul is not the main thing. It's God, his plans, his purposes, especially through the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ spreading the gospel. All things are to him. All things are through him. All things are for him. That's what Paul's saying when he meets some friends. Oh, God didn't need to do that. Oh, but God's kind. And so he thanks God because it's all about him. And so that leads us to the next thing, which is that the the, gospel is not just the main thing in the book of Acts, but it really is the main thing to Paul as well. The gospel is the main thing to Paul in his own life. And we see that in the fact that within days of reaching Rome, he is back at it. He's back to preaching Jesus. Look at verse 23. From morning... Till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. He doesn't take a break. He doesn't take a vacation because the gospel is the main thing. Uh, Paul's normal pattern when he visits a new city is he goes to the synagogue and he preaches to the Jews there. But now he's under house arrest. He's got... This Roman guard chained to him. He can't do that. And so he brings the synagogue to himself. You see that there, verse 17. After three days, he called the leaders of the Jews, and they gathered to him. The same thing happens in verse 23. They came to him at his lodging. And so we see how much the gospel of Jesus Christ means to Paul, and that he never once takes a break from it. Charles Wesley writes in, One of his hymns, words that certainly would have been true of the apostle, and I pray they're words that could be true of all of us. Jesus, the name that's uh, high over all, I think, is the title of the hymn, but towards the very end, he has this line that goes like this, Content, if in my final breath I may but gasp his name, proclaim, or preach him, sorry, Preach him to all and cry in death. Behold, behold the lamb. Contend if if with my final breath I, I could just say his name and preach him to all and cry in death. Behold, behold the lamb. Is that not Paul? 
you know, it's been years where really any night could have been his last night as he's been in prison and he's been under threat of attack. And yet all he wants is to preach the lamb, to convince people about Jesus being the fulfillment of of everything that God has promised and prophesied in the Old Testament. And he's persistent in doing so. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing to be said of all of us? Right? That, that we would be content, happy, if, if just the last thing we do is declare the Lamb to others. And he's persistent in preaching even in spite of the difficult audience that he faces. Verse 24. Some were convinced by what he said. Others disbelieved. But the mixed reaction does not discourage the apostle. It's not about, uh, it's not about um, numbers to him. It's not about fruitfulness. It's about faithfulness. The Lord will give the increase. And so uh, what motivates his preaching is clearly the gospel of Jesus being the most precious thing to him. It's the main thing to him, and so he wants to talk about it. And he'll leave, up, he'll leave the results to the Lord. Think about these verses that Paul gives us in other places in his writings that show us it's all about the gospel. 1 Corinthians nine sixteen. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. But necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. That's how he lived his life. I should be cursed if I don't preach Christ. Or Philippians 1, 21. For to me, to live is Christ. To die is gain. It's all about living for Jesus. A few chapters later, Philippians 3, he says, For his sake, the sake of Jesus, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. That's all I want, Paul says, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. Paul cares so much for his king that he is willing, if it is necessary, to speak hard truths, offensive truths, Offend people and make enemies. And that's what happens in this last recorded sermon of his in uh, verse 25 through 28. Look there with me. This is what really irks the Roman Jews is that Paul quotes Isaiah 6 and he applies it to them. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Well, it's a sharp rebuke, isn't it? It's a sharp rebuke. Why will the people hear and not perceive? Because their hearts have grown dull. You know what Paul is saying to these pious Jews who have come to hear him from the synagogue? You're not as pious as you think. You are not as godly as you think. You are not as spiritual as you think. And we better hear that today too. Don't let the fact that you belong to a reformed denomination uh, uh, cause you to be lazy in your personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, I know the right things. I go through the right motions. No, no, no. Uh, There's a warning here. You might not be as spiritual as you think. You might not be as reformed as you think. You might not be as godly as you think. No, you have a dull heart. That means you actually don't love the Lord. That's what that means. Your heart is weighed down. Oh, no, when you love the Lord, your heart is buoyed up, right? 
No, your heart is weighed down with earthly cares and concerns and selfish thoughts. That's why you don't hear and you don't understand, because you're self-obsessed. That would be offensive to hear. And he says, do you do this on purpose? Why will they see but not perceive? It says, because they've shut their eyes. It's an active choice. Right? It says, this people's heart has grown dull, and with their eyes they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. They're refusing to take in the message that is being preached to them. And so what's the result? The result is twofold. Two things happen. Notice what Paul says. The first is that God will not save them. God will not save them. They will miss out on the chance to receive the mercy of God. And that's certainly not God's desire. We know from Scripture that he's not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But of course, to repent, they need to realize their sin, and they need to recognize their Savior. But they can't do that if their hearts are dull, cold, disinterested in the gospel that Paul is preaching. There's a slight challenge in the tone of that final line from Isaiah halfway down through verse 27. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. There's a little bit of a challenge to the the language that Paul's using. You know, sometimes we get our children, right, to, to do things they might not want to do by suggesting that they actually can't do it. Oh, I bet you're not quick enough to clean up all the toys in under a minute. I bet you can't do that. Well, now they're going. Oh, I bet you're, uh, I bet you're not strong enough to, to help mommy or daddy with the, the household chores. Oh, yes, I'm strong enough, and they want to do it. Well, that's kind of what Paul's saying here. He's saying, oh, I bet you're not going to see with your eyes. I bet you're not going to hear with your ears, because if you did, God would save you, but I bet you're not going to do that, are you? The message is clear. If they want gospel salvation, they need to humble themselves. They need to turn. They need to repent. Are they willing to do it? If not, they will not be saved. That's the first result. But the second result isn't just that God won't save them. It's actually that God will save somebody else entirely. Paul says in verse 28, Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They well, listen. Well, now they're really offended if they haven't been already. But here we see God's gospel moving forward. We see the church continuing to progress in accordance with Scripture. God has always said this is going to be the way. Uh, this was always going to be His way. Think about Psalm 22. We, what did we sing earlier? What, what were the opening words of that song? The ends of all the earth shall hear and turn. Right, the hearing and the turning that's not happening in Israel will happen to the ends of the earth. Or Psalm 98. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of God. The salvation that the Jews are blinding themselves to will be embraced by those, the farthest reaches of the earth. Gentiles in Rome, sinners in Kalamazoo. And so the gospel goes forth as Paul declares, and that's a wonderful thing, but it does so at the expense of the Jews, and that's a tragic thing. That's a tragic thing. And it's a sobering thing, because what we're learning here is that you can only reject God's offer of salvation for so long before the offer is removed from you entirely. And then it's just too late, and there's nothing else to be done. Well, just the other week, I was out to lunch to, uh, to McDonald's with my son. 
with one of my sons. I have two now. I won't say which one. It was the one who can talk, though. And um, I was, uh, we were finishing up, and I asked him several times, was he done eating? Because there's still some food left. Maybe two or three times. Are you sure you're done? Are you, yeah, I'm done. I said, okay, well, I'll clean up, and you can go play in the jungle gym thing that they have there at McDonald's. And uh, as soon as he does the slide one final time, uh, Daddy, where's my chocolate milk? Well, it's in the trash can. Tears immediately. Why, why are you sad? Well, because I'm, I'm thirsty. Buddy, I asked you. I asked you two or three times. You told me you didn't want it, and it's in the trash can. And there's, I'm sorry, there's literally nothing I can do about it. But I changed my mind, he said. It's too late. It's too late. There comes a time when it's too late with God. God is slow to anger, but he is not eternally slow to anger. There comes a time where he removes the offer of salvation off the, t- off the table entirely because how often we have impudently rejected it. And is that you today? Are you at risk of losing out on the gift of salvation? Or, or maybe another way I could put the question to you is like this. Is the gospel the main thing in your life? We've seen it's the main thing in Acts. We've seen it's the main thing to Paul and other servants of God. Is it the main thing to you? Or do you not care about it at all? Do you trifle with it? Is it of little consequence? Are you detached from it? Is the gospel to you something that's fine for those people out there? But it's not of consequence to you. Maybe something that, that you'll consider more seriously when you grow up, when you move out of the home, maybe when you get married, maybe when you have kids. But now you don't care that much about it right now. But don't you see what Isaiah and Paul are saying? When we, res- when we refuse the offer of God long enough, there will come a day when God refuses us. That's a terrifying thing. If we refuse God long enough, there will come a day when he moves on. And that progression, that takes place famously in Pharaoh, right? We, we read time and time again, Pharaoh hardened his heart. He hardened his heart. He hardened his heart. There was still hope until we read those terrible lines. God hardened his heart. Now it's too late. Is that you? Are you at risk of having your heart hardened by God because of the way you've rejected him? Becoming entirely callous. Think of calluses we get on our, our fingertips, perhaps. And maybe if you're a guitar player, you get calluses. And what happens when you have calluses? You don't feel things there anymore. Is your heart callous where you don't feel the, the plea of Jesus right now saying, Come to me. You're weary. You're heavy laden. You're, you're laid low by a thousand, thousand sins. Come to me and I will heal you. I'll help you. I will save you. And you don't even feel anything. Are you at risk of being removed from God's offer of salvation? Or is the gospel the main thing to you? If it is, then you know what you need to do. You need to live like Paul. Content if with my final breath I may but gasp his name, preach him to all, and cry in death, Behold, behold the land. That's what we need to do. If the gospel is the main thing, then you speak the gospel. You share the gospel. You live like it's the main thing. And just as Paul is not the main character in the book of Acts, you are not the main character in your life. No, no, no. 
Jesus is. Well, the Christian knows it. Jesus is the main thing in my life, the main character in my life. And, and I want to be used valiantly in his story. I don't want it to be about my story. I want to be in his story. And yes, indeed, his story is continuing on from Acts 28. There is a part three. And it's being written right now. It's continuing on right now. The sequel is still being made. You're witnessing it this moment. We're witnessing the victorious reign of Christ the whole world over as I, 4,707 miles away from Rome, preach about the Lord Jesus Christ with boldness and without hindrance. And the story continues as you believe it and as you receive it. And the story continues as you go from this place and you tell others about it. And the story will continue until Jesus shall reign wherever the sun does its successive journeys run. And his kingdom stretch from shore to shore until moons wax and wane no more. Our Father, we thank you for the gospel and the victorious gospel. We thank you that it's been presented to us in the book of Acts as something that cannot be resisted, uh, something that is unhindered. And we hear that note of victory as we read those final verses about Paul proclaiming the Lord Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance. And your gospel still goes forth today. Lord, would we make it the main thing in our lives would we make Jesus the main character in our lives? And if there are any here today, Lord, who are at risk of rejecting your offer of salvation such that you harden their hearts, Lord, would you be merciful? Would you be so kind? Would you be patient and long-suffering with them? And indeed, by your spirit today, right now, Lord, we would not delay this request. We ask right now that you would melt hard hearts that you would exchange a stony heart for a heart made of flesh, a heart that receives the gospel, a heart that loves Jesus, and a heart that desires to live for Jesus. Make this so, we pray, and we ask it in his name. Amen.